Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. This morning and turn to one last time to the prophet Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 and after you have found that out of respect for God's word if you would please stand as we read this text one more time. Isaiah chapter 53 and we're going to be reading verses 10 through 12. That's that's going to be our focus for this morning. The prophet says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, Will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you, Lord, to teach us your truth this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. I would say that the greatest proof of the divine authorship of the scripture is the 53rd chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. This is the case in my mind because this prophecy, given 700 years prior to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact is that it records in detail The whole events that played out in his incarnation, his humiliation, and his exaltation. This is an absolutely amazing portion of scripture. And although we have spent the last several weeks looking at these great truths, I must confess to you this morning that we haven't really uncovered a tenth of what's all here. And so I would commend you for your own personal gratification and for the glory of the Lord and for further praise of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would stay this passage for yourself to gain more insight than perhaps we were able to give you in our time together here. Now by way of introduction this morning, I kind of want to highlight some areas that because of time constraints and my voice, we were not able to cover last week. If you don't know what I mean by my voice, go back and watch the video from last week. You'll get the picture. But I didn't, want to, I didn't want to create an entire another sermon, an entire another week, but I but also did not want to just not do it. But I, by way of introduction, I kind of want to highlight this for you. And the, and the part that I want to highlight for you in this is found in verse number 9. Where the Bible says, the prophecy says, And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. And you'll remember, as we told you last week, that there are five stanzas in this prophecy. And the fourth stanza, which is in verse 7 through 9, is the stanza that we entitled The Silent Servant. And we saw that throughout the entire unlawful trial, that Jesus Christ remained silent. He was silent through the trial, he was silent through his death, and he was, of course, silent in his burial. Now, the, the details that the prophet gives us here are absolutely amazing for us to understand. And the wording of verse 9 is the first detail that has to be uncovered. Because what does the prophet mean when he says in the first part of verse 9 that he made his grave with the wicked? Well, if you think about it, the, the fact that he made his grave with the wicked kind of makes sense because who was Jesus Christ crucified between? Two thieves, two criminals, two wicked people. 
The Hebrew there in verse 9 literally reads, His grave was assigned to wicked or with wicked men. Now, because Jesus Christ was considered a criminal, the Romans had plans for the body of Christ just like they had plans for those other two criminals. In fact, you could go back and read it for yourself. We're not going to do it this morning. But in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 33, the prophet there lays out the protocol, if you will, for someone who died the death of a criminal. The Romans' art of execution by crucifixion with a little something like this. When they would put the victim up on the cross or the criminal up on the cross, normally what happened is that the criminal would die by asphyxiation or they would literally, as you and I know, they would suffocate to death. That's why they would go across and break their legs toward the end of the time so that they could no longer push up on the cross in order to take in air and then they would just suffocate and die. And so asphyxiation was the normal cause of death during crucifixion. The Romans would leave the body on the cross until the flesh began to rot and birds would come on and they would eat the flesh that was hanging on and they would literally pluck the eyes out of the victim's sockets of his face. They would be left on that cross literally like roadkill for any animal that was able to climb up the cross and chew on the flesh that was there. And the Romans would leave them there for the purpose of warning anybody that was watching of what happens when a person violates Roman power and violates Roman law. Eventually, what would happen is that the rotting corpse would be taken down and it would be thrown into the city dump. Now the city dump was just outside of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, it was on the southeast side of the city and it was called the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. And one of the characteristics of the Valley of Hinnom was that the fire inside of that valley, inside of that city dump, never went out. It is interesting to note that if you do some study into the Valley of Hinnom, you would find out that the Valley of Hinnom was also known by a single word, and that is the word Gehenna. Gehenna. The word Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament, and it is primarily used in the Gospel. In fact, 11 of those 12 times, it is used in the Gospel. Now, the word Gehenna is a Hebrew word originally that came over to, to Koine Greek, and the word Gehenna is a word that speaks about the eternal damnation of souls apart from God. There are other, there are many words that, there are several words that are translated, that could be translated hell. There is Sheol, there is Hades, but there is also Gehenna, and that's what we have when we talk about the Valley of Hinnom, which is also known as Gehenna. Now listen, because the word Gehenna was primarily used in the gospel, it was also primarily used from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that tells us, folks, is something very, very important. And it means this, is that Jesus Christ spoke more about Gehenna hell than any other person in the word of God. More than the prophets, more than the apostles, more than the, more than John the Revelator, Jesus Christ spoke about Gehenna hell, the place of eternal torment, more than any other person in the New Testament. For example, Jesus Christ spoke about Gehenna hell in Mark chapter 9 and verse 47, and then he follows it up by the, by its usage in verse 48 where he says this, where their worm dieth not, speaking about Gehenna hell, and get this, and the fire is not what? Quenched. And that was what was characteristic about Gehenna, about the valley of Hinnom, was that there was a constant fire in that valley. And so ultimately throwing Christ's body into that valley was the plans of the Roman officials for the body of Christ because he made his grave with the wicked, because he was crucified as a criminal. But verse 9 of Isaiah 53 goes on. Not only does he say, and he made his grave with the wicked, but what does it say next? And with the rich in his death. 
Now that's an interesting prophecy. I remember as a teenage boy reading Isaiah 53 and reading that and thinking to myself, well, that's weird. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. What in the world does that mean? I mean, if Jesus Christ was assigned the death and the burial of a criminal, then how in the world can the prophecy then come along and say, or what does it mean when it then comes along and says that he made his grave with the rich? And basically what that means is this, folks, because there was a, because he made his, he was rich in his death, or he's made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because all along there was a man by the name of Joseph who came from an area of Arimathea. Now Arimathea was just northwest of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. This man, Joseph, had become a quiet disciple of Christ, and he was very, very rich. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57, And when the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Now, this is very important. According to the Roman officials, he should have died like roadkill. Jesus should have died like roadkill. He should have been dumped in the city dump. But he ended up being buried in the brand new grave of a rich guy. That's what that little phrase means. And with the rich in his death. Why did this happen? How did this happen? There's another wonderful detail that Isaiah gives that's the fulfillment 700 years before it happened. Verse 9 goes on to say this. This is the why. Because... He had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. It was because the Lord Jesus Christ was holy inside and out. The Father honored him, honored the Son in his burial, because there was no deceit found in his mouth. And in the future, when the Jews see him, they will say these amazing words of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was no deceit in his mouth. You see, they thought and they taught and they still do that Jesus Christ was and is a liar. That everything said about Him is a lie. And then one day when they see Him, they will say there was no deceit found in His mouth. And as already been mentioned, there are five stanzas to this prophecy. We've looked at the starling servant. We've looked at the scorned servant. We've looked at the substituted servant. We've looked at the silent servant, and the last stanza of this prophecy that we're going to look at this morning is the sovereign servant. The sovereign servant. Now to grasp, I believe, what's going on here, I want to go back and I want to just read to you the opening part of this prophecy that actually begins back in chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his vintage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. You know, this kind of creates for us a messianic statement that's Hard for us to understand. Difficult for us to understand. Impossible for the Jews to accept. Here we meet the Messiah. The servant. The slave of God. And he is called the slave of God because of his perfect obedience. But as we meet this Savior... As we meet this slave, as we meet this servant, one thing that we also find about him is that he is divine. He is God. Again, the prophecy says in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted. 
He shall be extolled and be very high. Now I want you to notice those three verbs. High, lifted up, and extolled. You know, or exalted. You know, the interesting thing about that is, is that all three of those verbs are used to describe God in Isaiah chapter 6. And amazingly, in John chapter 12, John says that the vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 of God high and lifted up, sitting on his throne with the angelic host around the throne, saying three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And John says in John chapter 12 that the vision in Isaiah 6 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we learn there is that the, is that this servant, this Messiah, is none other than the very essence of God. He is the expressed image, as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, of God. He is the exact copy of God. And I like what it says there that he startles the nations. He shuts the mouths of the monarchs. Boy, I can't wait to see that. I can't wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back in power and shut the mouths of those people that think they've got it all figured out. And there's a few people that I hope, Brother Blue, that he starts with that I'm not going to mention because we're on television. But I can't wait for the time when the Lord Jesus comes back and shuts the mouths of the monarchs, shuts the mouths of the rulers, shuts the mouths of the kings, and they will all be stunned because of His majesty and His glory and His presence. They will see and they will hear from Him like they've never heard from Him before. And let me remind you, folks, that the Word of God is clear on the salvation, the future salvation of the nation of Israel. Amen? You cannot escape the scriptural evidence of that. To deny the future salvation of the nation of Israel, you would have to undo Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Zechariah. Not to mention the teachings of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the apostles, and most of the book of Romans. The future salvation of the nation of Israel and the salvation of Gentiles is because, church, of these five stanzas in this prophecy. Thus far, we've only looked at them from the perspective of the people. And that will be the case down to the midway point of verse 11. Where when we get to the midway point of verse 11, we will go from the perspective of the people to God speaking once again. And so what happens is this prophecy ends in a powerful way to as God affirms the truthfulness of this confession. Now I want you to look at verse 10 again this morning. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. This is so beautiful. He shall see a seed. Don't you like that? He said, Pastor, I don't know what it means. Well, hang on. Because it's good. He shall see a seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We need to understand this morning, folks, that it pleased God to crush Jesus. It pleased God to crush Jesus. The Jews will know they put him to grief. And they will realize that it pleased the Lord to crush him. The Hebrew phrase there literally means to make weak or to make sick. They made him a guilt offering and they will get it. By their own confession, they will one day confess the vicarious, substitutionary, sacrificial atonement of Christ in the place of sinners. They will understand the great core of that doctrine. They will understand the fact that God made Him who knew no sin, sin for us. And many times we need to remind ourselves of that as well, don't we? We need to remind ourselves of the soteriological facts of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ, church, did not die as a martyr. He did not die the sacrifice of a good cause gone bad. He did not die as a political zealot. He died. He was crushed. He was bruised. He was afflicted. He was anguished as our substitute. 
Just think about that word substitute. And that's a wonderful word that's filled with all kinds of theological richness. Because a substitute church stands in the exact spot where someone else is supposed to stand. I was supposed to have endured that punishment that Christ endured. I was supposed to be on that cross. I was supposed to be in hell. I was supposed to have taken all the anguish. You were supposed to have taken all the anguish. You should have been in that cross in the middle, as I should have been on that middle cross. But He, the King of kings, the King, the Lord of glory, was my substitute. He hung on that middle cross in my place. And it pleased the Lord to do it. And He lives forever and ever as a constant reminder of the price that was paid for sinners. He was my substitute. And He was a substitute for everyone who would ever believe. Folks, I don't know about you this morning, but I cannot get over the fact that He took my place. Folks, He took our place so that we could be right with God. You know, I'm afraid that in the church we sometimes forget that. We take grace for granted. We've been Christians for a long time. We, we know the Word of God, but we take the basic stuff for granted. He took our place so that we could be right with God. He took the holy wrath of holy God so that I could be right with God. The righteous one took the place of the unrighteous. And I love that verse 10 says, the Lord was pleased to bruise him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. And if you look at that text there in verse 10, it is the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is what, Wednesday night class? That is Jehovah. That is Yahweh. That is the covenant-keeping God. The covenant-keeping God was pleased to crush him. The word please, just for your own edification, is the Hebrew hapes, and it literally means to take delight. Wow! The covenant-keeping God, God the Father, the Holy and Righteous One, took delight in crushing Christ. You know what that means, church? God the Father took delight in crushing Christ because He wanted to be reconciled to you as well. He longed just as much as the other two members of the triune Godhead to have that relationship back. And for that to happen, the holy demands of a disobeyed law must be satisfied. And it brought him much delight to crush the Son because it brought back that fellowship. The one in whom they, who, who had done no violence, the one in whose mouth was no deceit, was crushed for sinners. Do you realize this morning, I hope you realize this morning, That the, that the Father, that even though the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us, I want you to realize this morning that the Father does not accept you begrudgingly. You understand that, right? The Father does not accept you begrudgingly. Do you realize this morning that you were born again as a love gift to the Son? I, I can't imagine that, because I know me. And I'm very sinful. But yet the Father says, Son, I love you so much that I'm going to give you Michael Huffman as a love gift. I'm not worthy of that on my best day. Thanks, James. You need to work on the timing of your amens there, brother. You just beat her to it. 
We are the love gifts to the Son. And the Father does not accept us begrudgingly. Notice what Jesus says in His high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 6. I have manifested Thy name unto the men which Thou, what? (laughs) Hallelujah. I have manifested Thy name unto the men which Thou hast given me out of the world. Thine they were, and Thou gavest them me. And they have kept thy word. And in the same prayer in verse 9, Jesus says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast what? Given me. For they are thine. And in verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those thou that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost. But the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So how could all that happen? How was that all that, how is all that ever going to be possible? Verse 10 of our prophecy. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And we saw in our earlier studies the unjust trial the slapping, the brutality, and the abuse as, as men were doing their dead level best to, to put him to grief. But the fact is, church, that it was not men putting him to grief. It was not the Jews putting him to grief. It was not the Romans putting Jesus Christ to grief. It was the Lord. It was the Father, the righteous and holy one, putting him to grief. And it was not a physical sickness. Because the word grief literally means to make sick. It was not a physical sickness. But it literally means that God the Father did not go easy on the Son. That God the Father made it as most excruciating and most painful as possible. That the Father put the Son through every ounce of the most agonizingly painful, excruciatingly crushing blows that could be imaginable. It was God doing the crushing. And He made Him a guilt offering. John MacArthur says it it was the outcome that pleased God, not the pain. But the pain and the agony was necessary. He had to die under the full, unmitigated, unrelieved, Comfortless realities of divine law and wrath. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush Him so that we, unrighteous sinners, could have fellowship with the Father. You know, that kind of comes to full reality when you stand beside the grave of a loved one, doesn't it? When you stand beside the grave of a loved one and you say in your heart of hearts, Father, thank you for crushing Jesus so that this loved one of mine could be made right with you again. And it pleased the Lord to crush him. But notice the middle of the end of verse, in the middle of verse 10 to the beginning of verse 11. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. But wait a minute. He's dead. What's going on here? How could he see the offspring? How could could he possibly prolong his days? How could possibly the work of God be done in his hands? How could he, as the prophecy says, see and be satisfied? He would have to be alive, wouldn't he? 
in this confession. This is the confession, folks, of the resurrection. That's the only way that Jesus could see all these things, how His days could be prolonged as if He is alive. He's been resurrected. This is just magnificent. The one who is dead is going to see His seed. He's going to see His offspring because He is going to be alive. He will not only see His seed, but the phrase, He shall prolong His days, literally means He shall see His posterity. He is going to see the generations in the future. He will see all of them because our Savior is alive. And so the prophecy, the prophet not only prophesies the, the unruly, unlawful trial and the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the burial of Christ, but he also prophesies the resurrection of Christ. Folks, he is alive. He is alive. And because he is alive, he is watching every one of his called come into the family of God. He sees them. I like what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, beginning in verse 9, Hebrews 2, rather, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Did you see that? What is Jesus Christ going to do? Jesus Christ is going to bring many sons to glory. And how is he going to do that, church? He's going to do that because he is alive. He is alive. Folks, listen to me this morning. Do you realize that except we have a living Savior, we have no salvation? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not an important part of theology. It is the heart of the Gospel. That except Jesus Christ be alive, you and I are in sin and our faith is vain. He is alive. And that's how the prophet can say in Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, that he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, because he's alive. I love what the Lord says in John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, verse 39, and this is the Father's will which he hath, which hath sent me, that of all of which he hath given me, I should lose what? Nothing but should raise it up again on the last day? Folks, listen, let me ask you again. How is it possible that a dead servant of Jehovah could raise us up on the last day? He raises us up on the last day. Why, church? Because He's alive. He's alive. He will see His posterity. He will see His children. He will see the family of God complete. He will see all of His called come into the flock. He will see His children. An amazing reality because He's alive. And so what you have embedded in this prophecy is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 10 and 11. But look at the end of verse 10. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. I like that. This is a living reality of John chapter 6 because what was the pleasure of the Lord? The pleasure of the Lord, we just read John chapter 6 verse 39, all that the Father gives, I what? Lose none. Lose none. You know, the doctrine that teaches that you can lose your salvation is, anti is completely antithetical to anything that the Word of God teaches. The Word of God is very clear in our text. Of all that the Father calls and the Father has given me, I lose none. Do you realize this morning that you have, did not come into the family of God because you made a decision to come to the family of God? You came into the family of God because God, before eternity passed, gave you to the Son. And since the holy, perfect, immutable God gave you to the Son, it's an, it's an irrecoverable gift. It's an immutable gift. And because He gave it, He loses none. And He watches us come into the family because He is alive. He is alive. And the success of the Lord will be that none of God's children are lost. The work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ is complete. And God finds absolute pleasure in the salvation of sinners. And to satisfy His holy demands and to make that pleasure happen, the pleasure of saving sinners, He had to crush His Son so that He could have delight in saving sinners. Folks, Jesus just didn't die on a cross. He was crushed by the Father. And then the final words of their confession will happen in the first part of verse 11. He shall see at the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Travail, we usually link travail to labor pains. Any type of pain. He shall see at the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Who will he see? Who will he see? He will see the number of his children come to his completion. Just think about it with me, folks. What did, what did Isaiah prophesy? Isaiah prophesied this wonderful truth that the moment you trusted Christ, you brought satisfaction to the Father. God was satisfied when you got saved. He will see His spiritual offspring. He will see His redeemed gathered in. God is satisfied by the atoning sacrifice of Christ, and Christ is equally satisfied by seeing all of His children gathered around the throne forever. And all this is possible, and all this is brought to a fruition of the justification of many because He bore their iniquity. Now the middle part of verse 11, we begin to see Jehovah speaking. And from the middle part of verse 11 to the verse 12, this is God speaking. And he starts out by his knowledge. There in the middle part of verse 11. By his knowledge. This could be a reference to the fact that Jesus Christ was fully aware and he understood the plan of God because of the perfect wisdom that he possessed. And it was based upon that wisdom that Jesus Christ died to justify the many. The righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, had the knowledge and He took that knowledge and He was obedient to that knowledge. He was obedient to that plan. And He bore the sin of many to justify the many. And the text says that He shall justify many for He shall what, church? Bear their Iniquity. Bear is sabal in the Hebrew, and it literally means to support a heavy load. Listen, you and I had a sin debt that we could not support. Jesus Christ bore it for you. You know, if, as, as I read and study the prophet Isaiah, um, I, I come face to face with this amazing reality. If God never did another, did another thing for us, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was all we would need to love Him immeasurably and serve Him faithfully forever. At least it should be. But that's not all that He does for us. Look at verse 12. Therefore, now again, keep in mind, this is God speaking now. Jew, the Jews aren't speaking more. This is not the confession anymore. This is God speaking. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. After suffering is salvation. After sorrow is satisfaction. After death is deliverance. After the gore is the glory. After the pain is the pleasure. After the thorns is the throne. After the cross is the crown. The first coming was in humiliation. The second coming will be in exaltation. 
But I want you to notice what the first part of verse 12 says. This is just great. You know, we would expect God the Father to say, because of what Jesus Christ did, I'm going to give Him everything. Right? I'm going to give Him everything. I will exalt Him. And that is true. God did exalt Christ. Paul talked about the Philippians chapter 2. He did exalt Christ because of the humiliation. And He gave Him a name that is above every name. That is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11. So that is true. God did exalt Him. But that's not what's emphasized here. Notice the text says in verse 12, I will what? Divide him a portion with the great and shall divide the spoil with the strong. The emphasis here is, folks, is on sharing. He will, God will divide a portion. He will divide the spoil. Folks, let me ask you a question. Who is the great, do you think? And who is the uh, strong? Who is the great and who is the strong? Would it surprise you to hear? That's us. That's us. How how did we, who were insignificant and weak, become strong and great? Because the word great there is rob. And it literally means, I love this, it literally means many. Who is the many? Many. The many is the same people back up in verse 11 that He made that He justified. He justified the many that are us. He will divide the portion with the many that is us. If you follow the pronouns, you understand what the Bible's talking about. We are the many. The ones who are justified. So, what does the prophet say? What does God say through the prophet? The reward of the servant is not just going to be the satisfaction of watching all the ones called come to the family of God, but the reward of the servant is that he is going to divide the portion and the spoil with those that he has justified. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, And if children, which that are us, Then what? Heirs. Heirs of who? God. And joint heirs with Christ. If so be we suffer with Him, we shall also be glorified with Him. What does God divide? What does God divide? Folks, listen, I want you to understand this morning that we possess Everything that Christ possesses. We are joint heirs with Christ. Is not this the most magnanimous thing about the grace of God? Listen church, we're not just going to sit in heaven in some sense impoverished watching Christ enjoy all the reward. But everything that He possesses will be ours to share. And then the text says, He will divide the spoil with the strong. Who's the strong? That's also us. We are, the, we are the many who are made great. We are the weak who are made strong. And all the spoil that Christ won at the cross, all the redeemed throughout all the ages, will be part of the communion of fellowship everlastingly that will enrich our lives. And all of the things that Christ possesses in all of His eternal glories Everything of the new heaven and the new earth will be our possession as well. That's what the prophet says will happen. We will reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. We will sit on thrones with Him. We will reign forever and ever with Him in the glories of heaven. And everything that is Christ's will be ours as well. That's why the Father says, I will divide a portion with those that He has trans- justified. I will divide the spoil with the strong, those that He has made strong through His sacrifice. That's us. 
And all of that, all of that happens because the text says in verse 12, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What a servant of Jehovah this is. This will be the confession of the nation of Israel in the future. And God will, will affirm that this confession is true in His final words in verses 11 through 12. But not only must this be a confession of the Jews, but this must be the confession of every sinner today. The confession to repent of your sins, to know what Christ has done, to embrace Him in faith as the substitute that took your place. To confess Him as the risen Lord is to be saved. What a tremendous prophecy. What an absolute tremendous prophecy of what the Savior did. No wonder this led the songwriter to say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And no wonder that it led Charles Wesley to write these words. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain for me who Him to death pursued Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Verse 12. Alive in Him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Jesus Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace that you've bestowed upon us. We praise you and we worship you today, Father, because you are worthy of our praise. Your love is magnanimous and too, too high and too holy and too good to even be able to understand. When we read in the pages of Your Word and You have given us some insight into Your great grace and Your great love, but Father, we still, in our finite minds, we fall so short of being able to understand it. We can't fathom the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't fathom because we understand just a little bit of our wickedness. We can't fathom someone going through what he went through because we were a gift to the suffering servant. That he, knowing the plan of God, willingly died, willingly stood in obedience and was crushed by the Father for the joy that was set before Him, for the joy and the pleasure and the satisfaction of all of God's people being brought into the family of God.
Father, whatever union that's going to be in heaven one day, when all the family is gathered into one place, worshiping and honoring the one who loved us and gave himself for us. What a time that's going to be. Fanny Crosby had it right, and she said, I want to see my Savior first of all. Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy. that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and ever lives to make intercession for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you, Father, for loving me. Thank you, Father, for giving me to the Son. I didn't deserve it, and I don't deserve it. But thank you, Father, for giving me new life, unmerited, undeserved, given as an act of God's sovereign grace. Thank you, Father. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the exposition of the Word of God was a spiritual blessing to you. Again, for more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on Facebook at EBC Mineral. Our Lord's Day services are 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. Sunday morning and 6.30 Sunday evening. We also have a Wednesday evening service at 6.30. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that God's divine truth would be proclaimed always from the cross, through the church, and to the world until Christ come. And now from all of us here at Emmanuel Baptist Church and Divine Truth, thank you so much for listening and please stay tuned for further episodes. God bless you.